from KQED. There's this memory I have of me, my childhood friend Monique, and a popular amusement park in Sandusky, Ohio. Do you remember the Cedar Point trip and how we wanted to go to Cedar Point? Well, is this the trip that John Sally sponsored? I think so. John Sally was an NBA player with the Detroit Pistons. And at the time, they were the hottest team in the country. Monique and I were about 13 years old. Okay, absolutely. Because I remember going to the John Sally um, Cedar Point trip. Right. But we didn't have any money. Right. So we decided to write our dads. The two of us got out our pens, some single-ruled paper, and a few markers to draw flowers and hearts and stuff, and wrote our fathers a letter. The thing is, we never even met our dads. I just remember us having this heart-to-heart talk about it. Like, you were, we wanted to go to Cedar Point, but we might have been talking about our dads before then, or we thought up this idea. They never do anything for us, so the least they could do is to have us go to Cedar Point (laughs) to this amusement park, right? (laughs) But my dad actually did respond. How amazing is that, though? Because, of course, mine didn't respond. It's amazing, but it's also really, really tragic. Yeah. Because he showed up and he showed up like with the money. It's funny the details that stick with you. I can't remember my father's face or what, if anything, we said to each other when he arrived on our front porch with the Cedar Point money. But there he was in a blue and black tracksuit, a Kangol hat, cool Modi glasses, and $50 neatly folded in the palm of his hand. And like, but you know, by that time, how old were we? Like 13 years old? Yeah, right. He's like, you know what? And that really hit some soft spots. I haven't done much for you, but I will come and give you this Cedar Point money and just get out of my hair. Was it that or was it, I'm here to support you now. I'm here to. Well, the thing is, is like that happened. Yeah. And then we didn't talk again until I was like 24, 23, 24, something like that. It was the letter. You needed him. You just needed to write a letter like, hey, dad, this is important. I have this coming up. Can you at least be there for me? My father and I talked a handful of times throughout my life, but I never really knew much about him until his funeral a few years ago. That's when I found out how great of a dad he was to his other children. He had one daughter, Teresa. Everybody was talking about how much he was such a great dad to Teresa. Oh, my goodness. Like they knew at his shop, his automotive shop, like Teresa from the time she was a little baby on up that they saw her grow up. And like, that didn't necessarily um, bother you. It just felt surreal. Mm-hmm. Like, I literally felt like I said, I'm gonna write about this one day. Yeah. I really felt like I was out of my body. Yeah. Watching. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, I don't know what <laughs> what's happening here. Wow. And so, there was a small part of me that thought about going up to speak. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, I don't even know if I who I, I always imagine that would myself. be me. Right. Well, but, I couldn't really trust what would come out of my mouth. That would be my agenda, though. Like, thank you all for telling me about the man who was supposed to be my father. I don't have a kind story like you all to share today. I'm just going to keep it real. This expletive has never done anything for me in my entire life. Oh, I take that back. He drove me to the mall when I was 14. Wait, I said, wait. He sent money so I could go to Cedar Point Amusement Park. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's so great. I've never really shared this with anyone, but after my father died, I kind of felt relieved. 
I could actually let go of that childhood yearning for a real father-daughter relationship. But recently, there's this thing that's been happening. Cousins, aunts, and uncles from my father's side have started calling me, inviting me to family reunions and barbecues. And you know what? I don't really want to go. I don't want to have to introduce and reintroduce myself to explain who I am and how I came to be. So I have not responded. But I'm struggling with something. What if I'm denying my children the opportunity to have what I never had? A relationship with my dad's family? That's the question we're taking on in this episode of Truth Be Told. Dear Truth Be Told, told, I need your help. That's heavy. That's author Casey Gerald, and he's kind of a big deal. He graduated from Yale and earned his MBA from Harvard, and he's done several really popular TED Talks. I discovered him through his memoir, There Will Be No Miracles Here. When I was reading it, every fourth page or so, I turned into a sobbing mess. There are so many gems, like this one. My arms were so bloodied by the end of the game that I went to school the next day with dirty bandages in place of shirt sleeves. My friend Junebug, who was already a varsity running back and who sounded like a chopped and screwed Sly Stone record, saw me in the locker room and slurred, Damn, Kim Folk, them niggas turned you into a mummy. Everybody on the varsity had either seen or heard what the Lincoln Tigers did to me the night before. So they also knew what I had not done, quit. Thanks to one play and one night of punishment, I had what I'd long wanted, a little respect and a spot on the varsity. This was the first time I learned how far you can make it in America if you have enough disregard for your personal welfare. Maybe that's why football is the national pastime. Casey's writing is bold and cutting. His mother abandoned him when he was 13, and his dad, once a football star, grappled with drug addiction. But what really gets me is that even though Casey and I are very different people, so many of his experiences are familiar to me, like this one about waiting for his dad to pick him up when he was in elementary school. And all the kids are rushing, either walking home or waiting, their parents are picking them up, or the grandparents, and it's all happening, and it's this rush. And I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, and then next thing you know, I'm the last person on the, on the, on the porch of the school. When I was in second grade, this exact thing happened to me. My mom, bless her heart, was always late. In Casey's case, he actually tried to walk all the way home. It was dark and cold and scary. He almost got there when his dad finally drives up beside him and Casey, whose nickname was Scooter, starts sobbing. And then my daddy said, well, you knew I was going to pick you up, Scooter. It was it was so. Shaming, you know, and I just sort of in therapy, just kind of telling this story and my therapist stops me and he says, how cruel is that? It had never occurred to me that it was cruel. It just occurred to me that it happened, you know, and it was kind of, you know. And he says, the nurturing thing would have been to say, I'm so sorry. I am so moved by Casey's book because really, I've never met anyone else with so many childhood stories similar to mine. And for the last few years, Casey has been on a journey to heal from his childhood trauma. You heard him mention therapy. Because this final episode of Truth Be Told is deeply personal, I knew Casey was the perfect person to get advice from. We met at Casey's apartment in West Hollywood. His place kind of feels like an office or a research library. He's only lived here a year. 
There are books and magazines and notepads everywhere. And the cavernous, echoey ceilings make his place feel cool and airy. Do you want some tea, water? We sit down crisscross style on his deep tan leather couch and get right into my question. Why have I decided not to be in touch with my father's side of the family? And if I should, for the sake of my children? A couple things. One, why do you feel it's a denial? Two, why do you feel it's an opportunity? And three, why are you not interested? So growing up, I really never thought about that other side of me, truly. Like, I really set up this fantasy throughout my life that, like, my family was this one side of my family. Mm. And then it wasn't until I got older that I started to really feel angry about it. And I'm thinking about my children and thinking about them having this full life where they know all the parts of them and they don't feel denied by not being able to know their other parts of their family. And so I'm fearful that by not allowing them to know the other parts of them, mm-hmm. that maybe I'm shortchanging them. My therapist says when, when we experience traumas, we disassociate. Extreme versions of that might be to develop alternate personalities. The more quotidian version of that is to say, well, that wasn't a big deal. Mm -hmm. So I think your children, honestly, are somewhat irrelevant in this whole conversation. I mean, they're kind of a proxy. They're kind of a pawn in a larger chess game of what has happened to Tanya. What happened to me? Well, most of my life, I truly believed I wasn't phased by my father not being around. That was part of me seeking perfection. You know, perfect people are never bothered or hurt. But I was both bothered and hurt. That really resonates with me is that like you can, a traumatic childhood can be ignored until a certain point. It can only be ignored up until a certain point and then it bites you in the butt. Yeah. Everything. I was talking to a kid the other day this little black queer boy is in his second year of school in New York City, and he's from Nebraska. And he said, uh, he had come across some talk I gave, and he said, I thought I was going crazy because I left Nebraska and I came to New York, and everything was supposed to be different, and everything I left was still with me. You know, I I say in this book, I mean, you know, everything you run from comes running after you. I had no, you know, no plans ever to be a writer, Mm -hmm. you know, and I say I've said this often. I I, um, tell people, you know, my my only advice if you are thinking of writing a memoir is don't do it unless your life depends on it. Mm -hmm. I knew something was wrong with me. That's all. And just so happened somebody you know, paid me to investigate my own problems. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. I had no interest in dealing with any of this stuff, but I could go no further. Now, the hope is that conversations like this uh, hold space for that 20-year-old kid not to get that far, yeah? Um, But in a lot of ways, um, I mean, what does it mean to grow up a, woman in this society, uh, 
black person in the society, a queer person in the society. To some degree, it is a mass exercise in disassociation. Otherwise, how in the hell are you going to get through the day? And that's generation upon generation upon generation upon generation upon generation. I saw this great meme earlier today, uh, the Soldier Boy meme from the Breakfast Club, which is so great. When he says Drake, and somebody, and he said uh, the meme was uh, me to my black family. I'm depressed. The family depressed. <laughs> right? You know, it's like, what are you even talking about? Y'all remember Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poem, We Wear the Mask, written in 1892? If you were like me, you had to recite it in more than a few school plays. Well, Dunbar's poem expresses Casey's idea perfectly. Every so often, I search and watch this version, read by Maya Angelou. But we wear the mask that grins and lies. It shades our cheeks and hides our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile. With torn and bleeding hearts, we smile and mouth with myriad subtleties. Why should the world be overwise in counting all our tears and sighs? Nay, let them only see us while we wear the mask. I tell people sometimes that the muscle you build as an orphan is the muscle of a whore. You know, you very quickly figure out how to do and say and be whatever it is people need you to do or say or be or want you to, so you can get what you need, or a place to live, or some food, or to our prior conversation, so they see you as some worthy person. And I remember when my mother first started disappearing, um, as I said, my school was at the top of the hill from my grandmother's house, and I got this idea that if I walked the sidewalk perfectly, when I got home, she'd be there, and I couldn't put any part of any foot on the line between the square. I couldn't put two feet in any square. And if I just did that perfectly, it worked. And it did work once. And so this really, I mean, I'm 10, 11 at this time, it really congealed for me that if I was perfect, if I eradicated all abnormalities um, from myself, if I gave people in charge exactly what they wanted, then... Uh, I'd be okay. Uh, people would like me. People wouldn't bother me. People would protect me. People would, you know, whatever. And that did work. It did work. The only problem is that um, there's a limit to your ability to mutilate yourself. There's a limit to your ability to wind yourself up in this sort of um, um, constricting mindset. Um, you know, I used to, um, so back in the early days of the internet, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, my first television job, a coworker sent me this website and was like, this website's so funny, look at this. It's like all these women with these crazy hairstyles, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, purple, red, you know, M&Ms in their head and stuff like that. And I became like super fascinated by that website. And I became fascinated with it. And in a way I felt jealous mm -hmm. that like these black women are like, I'm, I'm free. I'm not conforming to anything. 
And there was just a real sense in me that I wish that I could be that. Like just tearing off pieces of myself so I could conform to this thing. We are told, we are taught from a very early age, from nap time in kindergarten, yeah, that we'll give you the keys to the kingdom, but you've got to leave parts of yourself outside. You know, much like you, I grew up in Detroit where it was 99.9% black. <laughs> you know, I knew white people existed. You know, I did. I was in spaces with them, teachers and stuff like that, or when I went out to the suburbs. But it wasn't until I stepped into a college campus that I was just consumed with whiteness. And just conforming to that um, in order to assimilate, in order to... And yet I saw people who didn't do that. Like, and they still were successful. So I look back in that and I think, well, I want that for my children. So now I've turned that to them. Like, I want them to be free in the, the purest form, for them to feel like they can always be themselves and never have to step into that idea. Because I was just learning about myself and, oh, this is what I need to be to move through society. I, had, I, I, I have to work through my hatred for the old me. Mm. Work through the hatred of the old you. Yeah, there are things that I did, there are ways that I showed up in the world, you know, this sort of, there is no nobility in saying, hey, you know, I cut off pieces of myself, I conformed to the world standards, I gave people what they wanted, I changed the way I talked, the way I walked, the way I dressed, I did all this. There's no nobility in that. I feel a deep deal of shame. I feel a deep amount of judgment toward myself, and I, and, and there, there are former cases that disgust me. And so much of what I've had to try to do is try to love that Casey too, and try to understand that that Casey, that, um, you know, uh, uh, threw all his sneakers away or uh, worked to change his accent or broke up with his boyfriend because he didn't want to go to hell. All, all those cases were um, responding, were, were acting in their best understanding of self-preservation at that time That's right. in a very dangerous and fucked up context. Right. And, I, and if I can get to that place of seeing that, well, that Casey wasn't a monster. He was just trying to... <laughs> figure it out, um, then we can recover him too. Yeah. I like five-year-old Casey a lot. He's awesome. Right. You know, 19-year-old Casey is a disgusting person to me. And so much of what I'm trying to do is have as much love for 19-year-old Casey as you see what I'm saying. I'm in that same position. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel that way maybe different times, but yeah, that same concept. But what's that saying? Like, when you know better, you do better. I mean, it's a sense of self-preservation at that time. Where are you in the process of forgiving the old Tanyas or the current Tanyas? Or well, it's interesting because um, I do think you get to be a certain age, like I'm a few years older than you, where I'm starting to step into this um, awakening and being okay with myself and just being okay with where I am. I love that, actually. Maya used to say, when you get give, when you learn, teach. Yeah. 
Yeah. And perhaps that is what redemption looks like. I also think, like, like sometimes we're too hard on ourselves. Really? Well, (laughs) says the (laughs) self-flagellator. So much of healing is taking a hard look at our own baggage and forgiving ourselves and those who hurt us, like my dad. But how do you do that? We'll be right back. The best question I've ever been asked, I was went to, in 2011, I think it was, I went to Coney Island, high school in Coney Island, and I gave this big talk about changing the world and all this kind of stuff to these kids in Coney Island, and the, this girl raised her hand afterwards, and I told some of my life story, and she says, um, my question is, have you ever forgiven your mother? And I was really pissed off because I thought she was going to ask me a question about like my career or school or whatever, you know. But I had really signed up to not lie to children. And so I had to confess for the first time that I hadn't, but that I wanted to try. So it really did take writing this book in a lot of ways to see what that required, and it does go to what I say. I had to see her, I had to see her as a human being that had been happened to, and not to feel sorry for her, but to understand that, one, a lot of the things that I felt she did to me were not about me. For a long time, I thought it was, I, you know, the thing I have to forgive is you abandoning me. That's a very flat story (laughs) that you see what I'm saying. Once I try to unpack that and see what actually happened, I decide to sign up to try to um, show up in any space with love. What that means is that sometimes my mother will call me and say, well, she's suicidal or she's sad or whatever, and I'm the only person that she can talk to. This is what she'll say. And I have to simultaneously hold, well, why do I owe you anything with holding? How do I show up in this moment as a loving person? So in order for me to heal, I knew I had to forgive my mother. And I knew in order to do that, I had to feel all those things that I actually felt and not sugarcoat it. So I had to write a line such as, if ever your mother asks you to choose between her death or disappearance, have her die. Always, though not immediately, of course. Um, But I had to get on the other side of that. And to do that, I had to try to see my mother as a human being, not as my employee. Hmm. Hmm. There's no question. Human being and not your employee. That's right. There's no not question. Not to the service of you. There you go. So what I'm kind of hearing from you, too, through your story, I mean, I'm trying to think of my father mm-hmm. as a human being and that he was happened to before he happened to me and all of these things. But I've denied my anger about it for so long. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I can't go into the room with these people who are my other side of the family and not show that anger. Like I'm not there. 
even though they aren't the ones who necessarily did this to me. Mm-hmm. And I guess maybe I'm just not ready to, to be that, mm-hmm. to be that angry person. Mm-hmm. But I've never really been either. I've always kind of been the person that it is okay. I am not phased by this. Mm-hmm. You see, I'm a success even in spite. Like that's kind of been my identity. You got to deal. You don't have to deal with it. But I think what I what I, what I say and what the writing this book taught me is that um, if you face it, you can't heal from it. Mm-hmm. But if you don't face it, it haunts you forever. So I can't just ignore it. Oh, you can. You can do anything you want to do. Yeah, you know. I was telling this kid from Nebraska. I said, "Hey, you know, I used to tell people follow your dreams. You know, I have to say it blind, blindly." I don't say that anymore. I said, now I say, follow your dreams and you will suffer, but it'll be worth it. You just got to tell people the truth. There's a cost for everything. Casey then challenges me to delve deeper into why I'm centering my children in this question about forging a relationship with my father's side of the family and what's in it for me. I'm very interested in that. Why do I think it's an opportunity? Uh... There is a small part of me that feels a little bit of giddiness and excitement that I can see aunts and uncles and cousins and see another part of myself that I never saw that maybe will give me a greater understanding of myself. There's just that little bit of that that I'm interested in. But then there's that relief that I felt, honestly, when my father died, that um, I felt like, okay, well, that's it. This book is over. I don't, this, you know, I can move on. Um, And so it's almost like emotionally closing that off for me. And then now, oh, now we're opening that back up again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how old are your children? Uh, Six and 12. Oh, that's beautiful. What does the 12 year old think about all this? Oh, you know, um, I've not really shared that much with her Mm. on this. Uh, you know, when she was younger, she did ask me, because uh, she has a loving father. And so I think when you have an awareness, when you start to come into the world and you realize, she asked me, do you have a dad? Mm-hmm. You know? And so I explained that to her a little bit. Um, and my son has actually come to that too. Like, do you have a father? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a little bit of relief for him that I can say to him, um, no, he died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a relief for everybody, quite frankly. Like, people react to you differently when they want to know your origin story. Mm-hmm. And you can say, oh, because it means different things to different people. Like, they can think, oh, okay, maybe you lived this life where you have both parents. When they say, oh, where's your mom and dad? Well, my father died a few years ago. It's like that ends that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Clean. That's it. That's, that's very true. Yes, yeah, very clean. This is partially why I said early on that I think um, your children are somewhat irrelevant to this question. Because the reality, I think the reality, I don't have children, but I was a child, um, is that kids really don't give a shit what's happened to their parents. <laughs> you know? I mean, this is, this I'm is not, this is not to make... Yeah, no, know? but it's true, But yes. for a kid's world entire, their mother, their father, it probably matters more to your child if their teacher was gone for a month than if they ever... meet anybody in your in your family you know it's just not um that's this is why i asked why do you think it's an opportunity for your for your kids i 
I think the only place of real interrogation here is how and whether this matters to me. Remember when my friend Monique and I were talking about our fatherless childhoods? I always wanted that real cookie-cutter kind of ideal. You know, both parents, both are really active doing their fair shares. You know, it's a modern family, so both parents are working and, you know, still being involved. Well, we both have that now. But if I'm truly honest with myself, this thing with my kids and my dad's family, it's about me wanting to craft a different childhood for them. A childhood free of trauma and absent relatives, so that maybe they'll have a shot at navigating the world feeling whole, unburdened, and free. I was talking to another sophomore in college who was writing a piece about the book for some campus newspaper, and he said, "Um, do you have any advice for us? And I said, what's on your mind? And he said, well, I think a lot of us are wondering, and I wondered as I was reading your book, whether we can be all of who we are and still be successful. And my response to him was, after a long pause, because it was nobody had ever asked me that before, I said, well, the real question is not whether you can be all of who you are and still be successful. The question is, if you are not working to be all of who you are, then what good is success? That, I think, is the fundamental question of the book. And I think um, many of us are in the middle of that process or at the beginning of that process. How do you teach someone to be free and what does that mean? The two things I think I know about this question of being free. One, it is fundamentally an act of refusal. Yeah. Um, We are invited every day, every hour, as I say, to cut off little pieces of ourselves, um, to uh, twist ourselves into, you know, little nuggets that are easily digestible so that maybe somebody will like us or somebody will hire us or somebody will admit us, whatever. Um, And they, and this is a bargain. They say, if you do it, you'll get what you need. Somebody asked uh, Nina Simone this some years ago, and she was sitting on the floor, she said, and they said, Nina, what is freedom? And she said, freedom is no fear. I don't think that's exactly right. Freedom is, and this is why I ask myself, and every time I'm with young people, I ask them, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And when I'm really honest with myself about the answer to that question, That's exactly what I'm supposed to do. And every time I do it, I build the muscle of freedom a little more. It's not that you're, that it's no fear. It's that you are willing to be honest about the thing that you would do if you were not afraid, the thing that you are most afraid to do and most in need of doing, and you're willing to do that and you're willing to pay the cost for it. And I understand this purpose. I know how big it is. And we can sit down and have a chat, you know. And we, I can sit on this couch and I can cry for 30 minutes. And I know that at some point I will not weep. And when I stop weeping, I will know that there will come a time that I will weep again. And it will be a very important time. And it will be a beautiful time. 
and it'll be central to my experience, just like when I go out and dip my toe in a pool or have some pot. I mean, you know what I mean? Right. It's, all, it's all good. Yep. It's all good. Casey, you're such a gift. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I needed this. It's been a hell of a week. <laughs> so I needed this. Thank you so much, really. At the start of our show, in our first episode, I shared with you the time my daughter asked me during a car ride once why all the homeless people were brown. Up until that moment, I was buying time. You know, sooner or later, you have to teach children of color the realities of how racism works. I can't remember the exact answer I gave, but I do know that experience reminded me that living as a person of color in this world means unpacking racism for the rest of our lives. And we need places to not only have conversations about this, but also collectively affirm, celebrate, and share our wisdom with each other. This show offered a small piece of that need. Our wise ones, who were so open and generous with their outlook and advice, gave us the language to talk about the complexities of love, sex, gender, race, how to navigate relationships at home and at work, how to feel enough, and how to find joy while doing all of these things. Man, isn't it so comforting to believe that we can speak across time to heal the wounds of our past, that we can heal intergenerational trauma through our actions? I'm standing a little taller after this show. And hey, if you haven't already, go to therapy. (laughs) Yeah. Find a therapist, you know what I mean? We, Black, Brown, Indigenous, and Asian folks could benefit from talking more and withholding less. Thanks for taking this journey with me. Truth be told, we see you, we feel you, we hear you. This podcast was produced by Christina Kim and edited by Sandia Dirks. Our sound engineer is Enrico Benjamin. Thanks to KQED's head of podcasts, Julie Kane, KQED's managing editor for news, Vinny Tong, executive editor of news, Ethan Lindsay, and chief content officer, Holly Kernan. And a special thanks to Rashid Lattimore for our kick-ass Truth Be Told logo. Phyllis Fletcher, Chris Perius, Yoan Martinez, Elena Lacey, Umbreen Bati, my mom's book club in Detroit, and everyone who was instrumental, big and small, for making this show happen. Truth Be Told is funded in part by a grant from the California Wellness Foundation. With a commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, the foundation's vision is for every resident of California to enjoy good health and experience wellness. Truth Be Told is a production of KQED in San Francisco. I'm Tanya Mosley.